Good morning, everyone. So, nice to be with you. I suppose a good number of you were attending the program at the Bhakti shop yesterday in the evening. And um, we didn't have much time to entertain any any questions or further discussion. So I'd like to offer you the opportunity this morning to ask any questions, make any comments, bring up any subjects for discussion that might be of your your interest. What does it mean, Gurmaj, when Vrindavan is the land of faith? Okay. That's an interesting question. Let me give a little background for those who might not be familiar with the term Vrindavan. Vrindavan, Brinda, Abu, uh, you must be familiar with the sacred basil. Mm-hmm. Sacred basil? It's available at uh, Sprouts and other <laughs> substores, some s- such stores, I'm sure. Um, but the sacredness of this uh, particular strand of basil, if you will, um, goes back to India, and there the sacred basil is called Tulsi, Tulsi, and uh, and there's a goddess that um, um, represents the personification of this um, Tulsi plant, and her name is Brinda, Brinda, and Vaughn. Bon means forest, so Brindaban is the forest of Tulsi. And this is the place where the pastoral leelas, or divine play of Radha and Krishna, um, takes place. So, uh, besides its uh, substantial, subjective, and meditative content and possibilities, it also has a physical manifestation in this world in India, about 90 miles south of New Delhi. And the um, it's thought to be the place where Krishna appeared on earth thousands of years ago, and, and all the legends about him and stories and so forth have developed from there, it's the place where he appears to be most at at ease and um, and uh, associated with intimately with devotees who um, relate to him in, in intimate modes of love, like we were speaking about last night. Um, other than awe and reverence. Agape, to use a Greek term, which is often the way in which we think of loving God. God's up there, and we're down here, and there's a distance between us, and so forth. We could try to do away with that distance by taking, doing away with the personality of the Godhead, if you will, and referring to him more as a substance of consciousness, the intelligence of the universe, and think of ourselves as a unit of that, and think then further of the union between ourselves and the divine as a merger of the two. But it is, uh, it's an interesting idea, and some transcendentalists and yogins do, do pursue that kind of ideal. But um, it, from our 
perspective in the bhakti tradition, the Krishna bhakti tradition, it does cause a type of union, hmm? but one that's at the cost of differentiation. I think what I mean to say is that we pine equally for both. We pine for equality, unity, and we also pine for individuality. Hmm? This is the problem, as I put it last night, very briefly, is that using politics as an example of the two spectrums of socialism and capitalism. So if you go completely socialistic, you get the group, that's for sure, but you can lose your individuality there. And capitalism is about individuality, and there's the loss of the group, and as much as capitalism thrives on competition with others and so forth. So... We need the group and we need our individuality. And love is really a combination of the two, in a sense, because in love, two persons, you and I, become we. So we become one, but we become we. It's kind of a dynamic sense of, 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 of unity, where your individuality is preserved and mine is preserved by way of you making my desires your desires and me making your desires my desires. So we, we change hearts, so to speak. You, you take my heart and I'll take yours. And um, so in love, there's a dynamic unity that includes within it a, uh, a, a diversity. Indeed, uh, an individuality. Indeed, love requires diversity. If there is no variety, there is no difference whatsoever, no no other, then there's not much scope for, for loving. So in a school of bhakti, therefore, rather than the idea of forging a union between ourselves as a unit of consciousness with the universal consciousness or intelligence, or Brahman, as it's called in the sacred texts of the East. Um, the idea is not to um, not to posit a God that's like, where is he uh, or she, sitting on a cloud somewhere, you know, <laughs> A product of, of nature, or something like that. But that, uh, but uh, and you have these kind of very, uh, kind of very uh, uh, troubling from a rational point of view ideas of God as a person hmm, that are a little bit off-putting. Hmm. Um, but the idea of the God had have pers- having personality is not off-putting in, a, in, in another sense. The way in which that may be presented may be a little off-putting, like where is he, you know, how far out is he, and what, you know, um, um, how does he transcend time and space and, and be within time and space and, and so forth. So the Bhakti tradition has a rich, as we were talking about it last night, philosophy and theological underpinning that that gives support to the idea of a personal, uh, a God with differentiation, personality, and so forth, that we can enter into a relationship that 
in a sense, transcends even the idea of the merging of our selves as a unit of consciousness with the with the uh, entirety of consciousness. So I'm speaking about some type of differentiation within union on the on the plane of consciousness beyond the differentiations that we experience materially, in which somebody experiences the room as hot, someone experiences it cold, as cold, someone thinks the Swami's talk was good, somebody thinks it was bad. Hmm. This may, these differences are all arising from our senses, their perception, the input that they feed to the mind, which makes a determination, I like this or I don't like that, and so forth. And we live in our not-so-sovereign domains, if you will, of the mind, and remain at odds with one another. So we have to go beyond that. The whole spiritual practice is one that that is a that 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 is not unreasonable, but it transcends the limits of reason. The practices are reasonable, but they themselves are transrational, like the chanting. It's not like a rational exercise. It's not irrational to chant, but the exercise itself is not a rational exercise. It's a it's a heart exercise and a listening exercise uh, where the mind is hopefully uh, drowned out and stops for a little while. And we can know in a way that we cannot know by thinking. We think we know because we think. But from the meditative and spiritual perspective, thinking gets in the way of knowing. Eyes get in the way of seeing what, what is the nature of form, what is the possibility of sound? What can these little fleshy things on the side of my head do to do justice to the sound of existence, hmm? the form of existence or its beauty, let's say, hmm? that we perceive with eyes? So these instruments, the senses, and the sixth of them, the mind, which is different and in a sense more powerful than all of them because none of them function um, in terms of perceiving without the mind minding them. Hmm? If the eye is in contact with something, but the mind is somewhere else, then we don't really see it. We won't remember it and later when we're asked, did you see that picture in the room? I liked that one. Hmm? My eyes were there, but my mind was somewhere else. So, But mind, as well as the six, five, five senses, hmm, mind sometimes talked about as the sixth, these are instruments that cannot do justice to perceiving, reporting on, experiencing the totality of being, which arguably can be a totality of beauty, of, of sound. Hmm? Why not perfect beauty, perfect sound? Why not perfect form? We can speak in the ways in which form is a limitation. I just have. Our material form is made up of senses. And I just said they're limited in terms of being instruments of perception and, and reporting the nature of being. But that isn't to say that form is inherently um, restricting. In many ways, even materially speaking, form obviously facilitates if I ask for a glass of water, you've got to give me the water. I asked for it in a glass. Otherwise, it would be hard for me to take advantage of it. So the form of the glass facilitates the uh, participating in, in, the, in the drinking of the water. 
So there's as many arguments for the way in which, in our experience, that form facilitates as there are for the idea that form gets in the way. So why not a form of perfect beauty, perfect sound, um, perfect uh, to the to the touch, and so forth? Um, and so, in this idea, we 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 go beneath, if you will, or within rather than without to experience the self that makes the world meaningful in any meaningful way. <laughs> uh, we give meaning to matter, we make it matter. It matters to us, not to itself. And so, to find the self as a unit of consciousness and then to pursue its prospect in transcendence. And it has a... Pro- Thank you <laughs> for the glass and the water. And the self has a prospect in transcendence, not only to be and and not die, hmm, but to love also, because we consider the self to be a unit of being, knowing, and loving. The Sanskrit terms are ones you're probably familiar with: sat, chit, ananda. So, if this if the self has a, is as a as an individual unit of consciousness has a capacity to love, then for that to be fully played out, it needs a significant uh, consciousness other, if you will. Hmm? And so, this is where bhakti picks up kind of where jnana or discipline of knowledge, that retires illusion, leaves off, so to speak. Hmm? And so a realm, a transcendental realm, something like Plato's world where mathematical formulas like Pythagoras, he thought numbers exist in a world, non-physical realm personified. Hmm? So it's something like this. You just think of a Western, there's the foundation of Western philosophy in, 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 in Greece. Uh, so away, and it's not that far from the east, Greece, from India. There was some connection there, as you may know, between the two. Uh, so, a realm beyond time, beyond space, and the limits of time and space. And within that realm, there are forms that are not, uh, they're not um, limiting in any way, but only facilitating. And they're facilitating Love. There's a form to love. Love has a shape. Love is a feeling, but we need to give it shape. Hmm? Art is a feeling. Hmm? Music, right? But its value is, 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 is appreciated and experienced when we give it shape, when we make a song, when we, when we make a canvas. Hmm? This canvas of Krishna Leela, hmm, of course, is... The, the art, I should say, is drawn on a canvas that's quite uh, philosophically uh, grounded. Hmm? So we're not talking about some of the atheistic uh, um, fundamentalists do these days, a tooth fairy. When we talk about <laughs> talk about Krishna or, or an elf or something like that. Uh, this, <laughs> this is a long philosophical and meditative tradition. It's a very objective tradition. Hmm? Oftentimes, spirituality is thought to be subjective and flaky and so forth. It's very objective because yoga, as we know, as a discipline, requires quite a bit of objectivity on our part because 
it requires us to step back from the perceptions that we have, that we are afforded by our senses and our minds. And, and um, employ or bring into our lives an element of detachment. If you want to love someone, you have to allow them, in some respects, I mean, to be who they are, rather than to be an object that you want them to be for your fulfillment, right? Hmm? So in love, there has to be some element of detachment as much as there is attachment. The detachment allows us to let people... When we're too attached to someone or something, we can't see it for what it is, and we're biased, we're prejudiced towards it, we see it only in a certain light. Hmm? Science is predicated on the idea of being detached, Hmm? a detached observation about just the facts, (laughs) ma'am. That's all. (laughs) Uh, But uh, scientists are humans also, as we know. So uh, uh, to be truly detached and objective, this is is the practice of yoga. A yogin is is experimenting on him or herself. And it's a 24-hour, you know, 24-7-24 occupation, ultimately. Um, and the idea is, of course, to step back enough for the, from the world to see it for what it is, rather than to misperceive it through attachment and all the problems that come from that. Hmm? So yoga requires considerable um, objectivity. The idea, basically, in yoga is that th- there is something called consciousness. I am consciousness. Consciousness is not matter. I am constituted of such. But I am identified with matter, the body, mind, psychological, biological complex. And um, there is a system, a method, a practice by which I can come to experience that myself, that I, hmm, the real I, hmm, it's different from I am this or I am that. I am American. I am a man. I am a woman, I am an Indian, I am uh, heterosexual, I am uh, homosexual, I am bisexual, I am this or that. These are all things that change, are subject to transformation, hmm? at least with death, if not in the very same life. Such is the nature of matter, it's constantly in flux and in transformation. But there's something that's observing all of this. That's us, but us, the I, sometimes gets confused by thinking, I am this, or I am that, that, or this, either one. That's a big limitation. Upanishads say, neti, neti, not this, not that, not this, not that. These little, small little sutras, a little code, not this, not that. You need someone to help you understand. What are they talking about? Not this, not that. It's talking to you. You're not this, you're not that. But you are. Oh. That's much bigger than the small idea of being this 
or that. I mean, we we are this or that to some extent, materially speaking, and that's our life, but we have to see that our life expands or extends beyond that. Hmm? And therefore we can be a woman or be a man, have this sexual orientation or that, or this race or that race or whatever. Um, The differences are in such a way that it doesn't inhibit or get in the way of pursuing and experiencing the bigger sense of I hmm, that transcends this or that. hmm, That's the witness observing the changes, who gets lost, so to speak, with the changes, preoccupied with them in kind of a virtual reality and... uh, and it becomes problematic for us. So it's a step back from that. Yoga is about this is a very objective type of um, kind of scientific approach. The theory is that there's a difference between myself as a unit of consciousness and my psychological and biological makeup. Hmm? That the self, which is a unit of experiential reality, is different from the non-experiential reality, matter. And we don't think in yoga that experiential reality comes out of non-experiential reality. For some reason, we don't think that makes a lot of sense. That experience could come out of non-experience. We hope you can follow me on that. Hmm? So we 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 have reason, good reason, to believe that 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 the experiencing reality. the meaningful one that gives meaning to the non-experiencing reality by calling this or that whatever. A house, call it a house. Is it a house? This is an idea, right? The house is an idea. You follow me? You could say, no, it's just wood and and glue and nails and iron and so forth. It's a conception. Hmm? So... At any rate, so there's an eye, the eye. And the theory, this is the theory. And then the yoga practice, uh, different disciplines, uh, different types of yoga, they're really aimed at the same, well, not today, but (laughs) there's a lot of different ones out there. But from a spiritual uh, perspective, traditionally speaking, it's it's a method for experiencing this. Obviously, the experience is subjective, right? Hmm. I can experience, first of all, and what will I experience about myself, the, the I, that's not this or that? I tell you, the first thing that you'll experience, and you really are able to absorb yourself in, 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 in sadhana. You know the term sadhana? It means spiritual practice. You will experience that you are eternal. Now, what you can say about that is not a heck of a lot. Hmm? But the experience is... It's almost, well, it is. It's, it's beyond thought. It's beyond words. You can use a word in the dictionary and, it, and you don't even know what it means because it doesn't really fit between the ears. Eternal. No beginning, no end. It appears that everything has a beginning and an end in our experience. Everything. And we are <laughs> watching the comings and the goings, the beginnings and the endings and so forth. It may appear that we end at some point, but this is only the biological complex that, that, that is, 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 is ending. And one can experience that in yoga, in spiritual practice. So you can begin, this is the beginning experience. I am eternal. It's blissful. It's a great relief. 
Because the I that is eternal is not the same I that you might not want to be forever, which is this or that, which is problematic. I'm poor. Hmm? I'm rich, and everybody likes me only for my money. Hmm? For example, all these types of I's, if you will, I am this or that, are maybe something you wouldn't want to be forever. Hmm? Indeed, the I that's a manufactured I hmm, is one we are constantly trying to improve on. It's not working for us. We're constantly trying to improve it. And that's basically what we do. Hmm? Little minor adjustments, major adjustments, but it's perpetual. Hmm? I mean, it, lessons that we learn, it's, it's not working. <laughs> that, and, and, it, and the good news is there's a bigger eye. Hmm? It doesn't need to be anything. It doesn't need to change. It's not subject to change. It's eternal. And knowing it through experience is very blissful because you just ended a huge problem of trying to be something, for example, by add-ons that you could acquisition that you could never be. Hmm? Trying to become rather than be what you already are. Hmm? Now, after you have to appreciate these are thoughts, these are interesting ideas, and they may resonate with us, but, you, but they're only as good as they compel us to actually take up a practice by which we can experience them and know in ways that just make us kind of want to talk about it even though it's difficult <laughs> to put it into words, to try to explain it, to try to share it. Hmm? It's a deep experience. This is the beginning. I'm eternal. Sad. And we'll experience I am chit. Hmm? I'm cognizant. You see, um, there could be an existence and there is an existence that is not cognizant. There's an unknowing existence. Matter is an unknowing, you follow me? Existence. So there can be an unknowing existence. There can be an existence without knowing. But there can't be a knowing without being. There can be being without knowing. But there cannot be knowing without being. How could you know if you didn't be? Something could be and not know. That's a fact. Hmm? We think of matter like that. But one cannot know and not be. Now one could know and of course be, but not love. That's also possible. But you cannot love and not know and not be. In order to love, you have to be and you have to know. So of the three elements that the self is constituted of, sat, being, chit, knowing, ananda, loving, the ananda is, 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 the, is the, what brings, makes it all worthwhile, <laughs> so to speak. Hmm. That's why, materially speaking, we're trying to be this or that, but we're really just trying to love and be loved. Hmm. That's all we're trying to do. Through this or that, however you want to might, might call it. Hmm. Even warring is about loving, hmm. on some you know, in some perverted way. Hmm. So we are a unit of being, a unit of knowing. We can experience that we are eternal. We can experience a kind of knowing that makes us feel confident. Nothing else needs to be known. Hmm. Knowing this, 
I know everything that's worth knowing. And it's me, what I am. And how what I am is so bigger than any idea of I am this or I am that. But now the loving side, as I said, to fully experience the loving, then there have to be it has to be some differentiation within consciousness. You could be and know without any variety and just sit shanti shanti shanti. But to love in the full sense of the term, there has to be some differentiation. It cannot compromise the unity. Hmm? It should embellish and ornament the unity, to de- de- decorate it. Hmm? So in yoga, and in bhakti yoga, in the yoga of our tradition, we're pursuing this loving aspect through which the being and the knowing aspect of the self will automatically also um, be experienced. Hmm? The experience is obviously subjective. I cannot bring it out in the laboratory and say, put these things, electrodes, on my head, now I'm going to meditate, and what I report to you I'm experiencing, it's going to show up on the computer screen. Um, That's not going to happen. I can report to you things, and you may say, well, that's okay. He said he saw God. He said he's eternal. How do we know? You don't, by that method. That's true. The, this objective third-person way of knowing is really over, um, over. Um, what's the word for over? Um, overrated, overrated, overrated. This is the modern idea. Why is it overrated? I'll give you a simple example. We do. We cannot prove objectively that we exist. You cannot prove it. Hmm? But we don't wait for the proof to get up every morning and get busy and, and do things and whatever it may be. Hmm? It's a subjective experience. I exist in a private world <laughs> that nobody else can really enter into. I, I experience in a certain way. This is the basis of all reality hmm? that I exist and that I experience what I experience may be correct or not, but that I experience is certainly correct. This is the basis of reality. And meditation is pursuing what that's all about, experiential reality. So we cannot, it's a subjective experience, but what we find is that amongst the few rare people who take this up and, and, and deeply experience in different traditions... In the Sufi tradition, like Rumi, in the Hindu tradition, there are many. Shankar, the Buddha, in the Buddha tradition, Sri Chaitanya, who we were speaking about last night. In the Christian tradition, there are a number of mystics, Teresa of the Cross, John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, and others, and so forth. Their reporting, while slightly different in some respects, has much common ground. And the common ground is, if you look at what they're saying, they're saying, I experience that I'm eternal. Hmm? I'm sat, not asat. I'm chit, not achit. Hmm? I'm not subject to transformation, like death. I'm not unknowing, unconscious, hmm? like matter. And I have a capacity to love. Hmm? Hmm. What is really 
love about? This is a question. What is really love about? Love is really about what we are. Because we love things only to the extent that we have identified with them and through identification kind of entered into them. So we love our things. If you drive home tonight and get a flat tire, it's going to be a bummer. Right? But if you see somebody else with a flat tire, you just keep going. Because <laughs> one is your car, and somebody else is, that's somebody else's car. You're not in that car. Even if you're not physically in your car, but your son crashes it, you know, bumps it into a tree or something like that, it's a problem. He's all right, but, you know, hopefully. But the car has been dented, and why is it a problem? Because it's mine, I think. And I, this little two-letter word, my, is how we, in, 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 through language, speak about the fact that consciousness has the capacity to project itself into things and become attached to them. Hmm? And this creates the false I. Hmm? And so, what is lovable about the car? What's lovable about my house or my friend? It's, it's me. You understand? I projected myself into a combination of material elements, ingredients, hmm? and only to the extent that I'm there hmm, in some way hmm, is, it have, is it attractive to me. So I'm attractive. You understand? The basis of loving is the self because it's a unit of ananda. Hmm? So in our tradition... We are pursuing, through the yoga of bhakti, this ananda. And the being and the knowing will automatically be realized as well. Hmm? And ultimately, we'll enter into the leela of Krishna hmm? in this pastoral land called Vrindavan, hmm? the forest of the sacred basil. Hmm? It's, it's what's being described there... Hmm? You see, if we live in material existence, we identify with uh, psychological and biological complex, we limit ourselves, as I'm saying. And so to be freed from those limitations and that identification with matter, we move from this identification with form and shape and differences to a non-differentiation, a unity, and a formless reality, so to speak. Hmm? Right? And that seems a lot bigger and a lot more spacious than the confines of uh, a life based on material identification. Hmm? Now suddenly we're talking about forms again, but in a way that will not be limiting. We're talking about realms, like places. Hmm? We, we tend to think of places in terms of time and space and, and the limitations of them and so forth. But what are spaces, materially speaking? What are forms, materially speaking? They are basically consciousness projected on matter. When consciousness projects onto matter, for example, matter starts to matter in a way that it doesn't otherwise, and wood and stone and what not comes together and we call it a house, an apartment. And it's a very nice one. We're very well 
hosted here. I much appreciate it that I wanted to mention that. Our gracious host is also with us this morning. I'm talking about you. <laughs> about your your apartment, so you gotta pay attention. <laughs> and how how gracious you are to have hosted us here. We we're also talking about metaphysically what an apartment is. <laughs> but, <laughs> So it's a form that has resulted from consciousness projecting itself onto matter. So if consciousness can uh, turn itself on itself, there can be shapes constituted of consciousness. In other words, love can have a form. A form of, of, of being, knowing, and loving. The very shape of these things. It's hard to grasp, but... but uh, this is the idea in bhakti. So there are transspatial spaces. Trans, there's transtemporal time. Hmm? In the leelas of Krishna, there's no beginning, there's no end, but there's sequence hmm? for variety and so forth. So uh, time kind of rules here in a way. No, time and tide wait for no man or woman. Hmm? But there... It works in another way hmm? uh, to facilitate variety, change, and so forth. Hmm? Change in the context of every moment being eternal at the same time. It's a very um, interesting concept. So, this is <laughs> the, the idea is if we move from the limitations of name and form in this world resulting from material identification we come to I am consciousness. We are all consciousness. We've touched the ground of being. Now we're sitting on the ground of being. doesn't seem to be anybody else there. It's just I am hmm? consciousness. It's very still, that ground of being. There's no dancing going on there yet. So when we, when we come to bhakti, this ground starts to move. The ground of being starts to move. And the ananda aspect of the self is participating in what love constitutes, an interaction, reciprocal dealings with, with Brahman. Hmm? So there's movement in transcendence. And now we're talking about transspatial realms. It starts to sound in one sense like, we went to Swami from forms and names to the formless. We were doing pretty good. There's a lot of room there. Now you're talking about forms and names. But what's being talked about there is not a spatial limitation, but an expansion of space in this sense. How big is a space, any space? It really depends upon what's going on there. You could have a space like the Sahara Desert. It's big. Hmm? Every now and then you see a camel. Hmm? It's big, but... You could have a much smaller space where something of something is going on that you're very interested in, that's very affectionate, and it would be, in that sense, a bigger space. I've said before that when you're in love, then you could live in a small in a closet. You're, it's a bigger space because it's bigger by way of affection. I could live in a big space by myself, but I could live in a smaller space with somebody else whom I loved. Much smaller space. And it would be much bigger in that sense. 
So we're talking about plumbing the depths of the fact that we are a unit of ananda. Ananda means bliss. It means that we have a capacity to love. So the more that we can get, we, we can enter into affectionate dealings in transcendence, the bigger space we're in. But in order to have affectionate dealings, there has to be another, and there has to be specificity. There have to be qualities. To love, there have to be differences and unity at the same time. Hmm? I know that's not logical, but life doesn't have to be logical. I mean, there is a logic to the idea that we experience every day, for example, that giving, if we do it right, is the getting. Hmm? It isn't, that's not mathematically, I don't think that makes much sense. But that's our experience. Life is more mystical and logical. It's logical to conclude that life is mysterious in this way. That by giving, you get. Hmm? By loving. Hmm? Loving is the... Is, is it, in other words, loving is the biggest sense of being and the highest sense of knowing. It's essential kind of knowing. In love, there's a kind of knowing that's automatic. Hmm? You don't need to know anything else. You don't need any space. Your space becomes bigger automatically. So when we're moving in bhakti from an undifferentiated plane of consciousness in the super-subjective realm beyond time and space, if we approach that realm, consciousness beyond time and space, in a particular way, bhakti is a particular way of approaching it, then we have prospect for experiencing the full aspect of its ananda. Hmm? If we approach the transcendence simply to get away from the problem of material existence, hmm? that's how far we'll go into transcendence. You'll end the problem. Shanti, shanti, peace, peace, no problem. No other, nobody to argue with. Hmm? No difference. So, I guess, I guess you could call that unity. One note. Oh. But a concert is many notes. Hmm? They're all working in harmony. Hmm? This is a kind of unity in which there's difference at the same time. This is more charming idea. This is a more nuanced notion of transcendence that corresponds wholly with the fact that we are, among two other things, sat and chit, a unit of ananda. Hmm? To address that, hmm? then there must be a kind of unity and experience in transcendence where the unity is ornamented by difference, by variety. So as we go in that direction, we go beyond this Kind of, we can only use words to, to talk about it. They're limited, but we go beyond undifferentiated consciousness. Through bhakti, we can enter into a realm. In the Sanskrit text, it's called vaikuntha. Vaikuntha. It means free from any anxiety. It's a it's an adhoksuja, a realm that's overtly different and transcendent. And there, the the concentrated Satchitananda appears in the form of Narayan. He has four arms. It's a way of talking. It means like different. We have two arms. 
forearms can do anything, or more than one, more than humans. So the gods are often depicted in Hinduism as four-armed, or they have more heads, or <laughs> whatnot. It means they're bigger, or they're different. Their their capacity is is, is 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 greater than ours, something like that. So, Narayan, hmm? and Narayan is being worshipped in awe and in reverence. Hmm? This is a realm that apparently mystics of different traditions enter, and Narayan may appear in different ways. So Narayan has many faces that constitute different emotional realities of the Absolute. So, And how many of those faces are there? The the text says Asankhya, unlimited. So if we approach from a different cultural tradition, for example, let's say than the Hindu tradition, hmm, then Narayan may show a face that corresponds somewhat with our cultural uh, background in transcendence. So there's no contradiction in that the mystics of Catholicism are experiencing archangels and in Hinduism they're experiencing Shivas and Brahmas and so forth. Hmm. Uh, somewhat relative to the approach and entirely dependent upon the fact that the Godhead can show any face. Hmm. Hmm. So there can be a Jesus loka realm. It's hmm. possible. I don't know much about that one, but it's possible. <laughs> I was going to say, we'll give it a possibility. Yeah. Uh, there are some great mystics in, the, in all the traditions. So, the reverential realm. Now, this realm that that was asked about, this Brindavan. I said it's a forest of sacred basil. It's a strange idea, but what it is, at first, what it is is we're moving into a realm of greater affection. Because from reverential love, hmm, we have some union with the object of our love and some distance. We're here and he or she is there, right? And the language we use, like Om, Amen, or whatever, you know, Amen, Dominos, Fobiscum, we used to be like that one. Latin masses I grew up with. Um, and then you respond, et cum spiritu tuo, the incense and so forth. It's pretty far out, actually. Uh, so <laughs> so this, there's a ritual, ritualistic kind of realm, and the language is different. There are certain procedures and so forth. It's, it's mystical, and it's, it's awesome. Hmm? It's awesome and awe-inspiring. And here is the God, the beatific vision. Hmm? So there's love there, but it's a certain type of love. It's reverential love. And arguably, there are other types of love that are more consuming. Hmm? That's why people go to church and they check their cell phone, you know, whatever, you know. What else is going on? <laughs> they love the football game or something. You know, they don't love God and... Or they're worried about their kids, you know, and they have parental love. So these are more consuming. That's supposed to be a problem. We're trying to make that into a solution here. We're saying, yes, these types of love are more consuming. Why can't we love God in those ways? Hmm? Like parents love their kids with that type of type of intimacy and the power of that. Hmm? Or friendly love or romantically. Hmm? So this 
obviously is what we're talking about is a realm in which the prospect for affectionate dealings is expanded and increased. So the realm is becoming smaller. We went from a small world, a selfish world, material world. It's selfish. In that sense, it's small, small-minded. We're thinking ourselves to be this or that, and we're fighting with one another to, to be this or that. Because each one of our thises or thats that we think we are has needs that need to be met. And there's only so many resources. So it's a small-minded, narrow-minded world. We went from there to selflessness. We gave up all selfishness. We became a yogi. Now we could live in a cave, meditating on the self, a breatharian. Hmm? Only a little breath once a month I'm taking from the world, that's all. Hmm? I've practically demonstrated that my theory that I'm consciousness, not matter, I'm a breath away from proving it objectively. See you in a month, something like that. I mean, this subjective experience that he or she is reporting, I have to take it a little seriously. Even though you can't, well, he's going to die if he doesn't breathe, right? Okay, yes, but that's like saying, okay, unscrew the light bulb. See, there is no such thing as electricity. Hmm? No, there is. Hmm? (coughs) So, from selfishness to selflessness, hmm? and the peace of that, and now the stirring within peace. Hmm? If you have a war and then you get peace, oh, it's a big relief. The country's at peace. And after some time of peace, then you have to start love. Peace and love. They go together. There is peace in love, but there may not be love in peace. Hmm? And the nature of peace within love is, is also different than peace unto itself. <laughs> There's a dynamic kind of peace in love. Hmm? There's lovers' quarrels, for example. It doesn't look like they're very peaceful, but this, they're actually a material example, but they're showing their love for one another. So love is, is, a, mo- is a movement, you see. Love cannot be still. It's moving. Hmm? And it's peaceful, in as much as I won't give it up. I'm, I've, I've, I've searched and searched until I could find love. I could not find peace. I found love. I got peace. And then I found that love has a movement of its own. So off I go again in another way. Hmm? Hmm? So we went from selfishness, small-mindedness to the self. And now the self is in peace and is stirring for love. To explore the fullness of the of the Ananda, so it from goes in bhakti to reverential love, as possibility, and then the realm beyond this. This is the this is the land of the sacred basil that we're we're, we're talking about, trying to talk about, <laughs> and there the Godhead appears in a finite like form. Narayan was infinite like. And Krishna's finite-like. Narayan is obviously God. He's got four arms. He's commanding the whole affair, whatever, in that domain, something like that. 
Krishna is playing a flute and hoping that Radha loves him. Hmm? So what kind of God is that? He's only playing. means he has nothing to accomplish. Fully accomplished. In order to play, you have to have some power. You have to have money in the bank to take a vacation. You have to have power in the company to take time off. So who's only playing? This is the full face of the Godhead. Hmm? This is the idea in Hindu. The full face, he's only playing, has nothing to accomplish. Hmm? Leela. Fully playing and playing in love. Hmm? And all possibilities of love with Krishna. It is a realm where the infinite wants to become close to the finite. And in order to do so, philosophically speaking, the infinite has to take a finite-like appearance. Otherwise, there'll be a problem. Hmm? If you know you're sitting next to the infinite, you'll say, oh my God, and move back. So if the finite disguises itself, the infinite, as a a finite-like, then there's a possibility for for, for reunion and intimacy and affection and a bigger knowing, a bigger being, if you will. The, 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 the existence, a loving existence is the biggest existence, however small it may be geographically or sound. So the realm of Krishna is spoken about in language as a small place. Small place, a village. And there's small-mindedness going on there too. There's all types of gossip in the village. I heard that Krishna met with Radha in the night. Is it true? Except that that's part of the Leela. <laughs> it's the reversal of the whole of material existence. This is reversed out, so to speak. Hmm? And everything is centered on the Godhead. Whether here, all that we have is there are many different centers, that's the problem. Each person is making themselves a center. Hmm? So they are a realm, anyway, a realm, a transtemporal, a transpatial realm. And it's depicted as being very quaint and small, intimate. Hmm? Like in a village, everybody knows one another. Hmm? Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody's kind of more or less related. Hmm? <laughs> yeah, hopefully, in a healthy way. Uh, <laughs> I had to bring one guy in from another village or something like that. <laughs> you know, you can, so, but, but he's related by law or something, by, by the law of marriage or something. So, like we have an ashram in Costa Rica in, uh, in, in, a, in a jungle, mountain jungle there, 150 acres. And one of the fellows there who works with us, he was born on the land. He's about 10 years younger than me. So he's been working for us for some time. And, and, um, and um, he knows everybody. In the area, everybody practically has got a cousin, a brother, a second cousin, third cousin, fourth cousin, everybody. That's very charming to see. I mean, we, it's, we're so distanced from that type of um, lifestyle here in the industrial you know, center of the, of the, of the world. Um, you don't know the person across the hall, practically. Hmm? Portland is fond of its being, its community, sense of community. So you can appreciate what I'm... I'm talking about because we, we really we, we seek that. Hmm. So there, it was just so natural, and it's just it's 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 it was very charming for me to see. Once I asked him, 
know, want to, could you, do you know anybody? Oh, I know. That's my cousin over there. And what about this property? Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah that's one. My brother owns that. I mean, his brother's, you know. And it's very um, small, but very, he's very happy. Hmm? Huh? What we need to be happy is just affection and family and meaningful relationships. So this land of Vrindavan that you're asking about is, is talked about in language and literature like this for helping us to get some idea of, an, of a realm of affection where the ananda of ourself can be fully played out and experienced in relation to the, to the, to the, to the, to the absolute, to the, to the Godhead. And so it's called Vrindavan. Hmm? Vrindavan, the forest of uh, sacred basil. Hmm? So, and the sacred basil, the Tulsi, has a, a personified form as a, um, a goddess. Hmm? So she presides over the, the realm in, in, in ways, um, and she is a is works like Maya. You know the term Maya. Maya is a Shakti that has a deluding power. And it makes the world kind of go round. We're deluded, and so we go down this turn or that turn. We're deluded by the carrot of acquisition. Just come a little further, and then there's another carrot. Appetizer after appetizer after appetizer, and never getting the full meal in material life. So Maya is like this. Kind of a, a mystical power that that once we turn matter on, it has the power to, so to speak, to delude us and to and to, and to cause us to think that there's that there's sat, there's chit, ananda in matter when it's actually in ourselves. Hmm? So on the other side, now in transcendence, there's another shakti, another maya, hmm? but this is called yoga maya. So the, the juxtaposition of these two, yoga and maya, seems contradictory. Yoga is for getting out of maya, hmm? for overcoming maya. But this is a yogic maya, hmm? a yogic maya, a yogic maya that causes the Godhead to forget its godhood, so to speak, hmm? so that it can enter into an intimate relationship with the, the fire can enter into an intimate relationship with ourselves as the sparks, something like that. Hmm? So this maya is, is, is orchestrating the movements there in the lila. So, lila, lila shakti, there's another name, lila shakti. The shakti that, that, that governs the lila, that's, if it's a drama, then it changes the scenery and... Hmm? make sure that the script is playing out the way it should, something like that. So this this uh, goddess personification of the Tulsi, hmm, she is the Lila, Lila Shakti, and she's uh, deluding. There's a kind of a, there's a kind of a divine ignorance there, because love is a kind of knowing, but it's also a kind of ignorance. Hmm? He said, love is, what it, bliss is ignorance, ignorance is bliss. There's some truth to that, right? <laughs> in a problematic way, in this world, ignorance is bliss. So you get stoned and, yeah, yeah, and blissful. Um, so but on the other side, we're talking about a kind of a divine ignorance. You're with the Godhead, but you, you're thinking, is your pal. Hmm? 
or your lover. Hmm? And you're experiencing that. So there's a kind of a... Um, and the Godhead is also in the drama. The best way to be in the drama is if the actor actually thinks he is or she is, the actress, the person, the role that they're playing. Hmm? And then they can start to take on their actual personality and so forth. So Leela is something like this. And Tulsi mm, is the personified. It's, 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 it's a way of talking about the Shakti. Now you asked about Vrindavan, and what was your question in particular about it? Why is Vrindavan um, called the land of faith? Land of faith, okay, right. So there is a realm of doubt, and we shouldn't doubt that, <laughs> right? In one sense, intelligence is a function of doubting, so we doubt, we question. Hmm? But doubt is also such that when we experience doubt or suspicion, our animation experiences suspension. In the Gita, it is said that a person is their faith. Their faith is colored by different gunas like sattva, rajas, tamas. And then there's nirguna, transcendental faith, hmm? coming from that side. Hmm? So, while there is faith, shraddha, in all the gunas, in overarching sense, faith is of a sattvic nature. Hmm? That's why people say, well, at least he believes in something. Hmm? Can appreciate that. I don't believe it, but at least he believes in it. It, it. There seems to be some virtue in that. Why? Because when we have faith or belief, uh, they're slightly different, but let's say faith, then you can move. You can go forward. Hmm? Intellect alone is a rather kind of fence-sitting. Hmm? So it really be, its full function is when it becomes an assistant to faith. Hmm? Intelligence helps us to pursue what we believe in. Hmm? Then it has the most meaning. Otherwise, it's, you, you can't do anything. Hmm? Suspicion leads to suspension. Faith, in another sense, is absence of doubt. That sounds good. Hmm? In the absence of doubt, you can proceed. I mean, with regard to anything. Hmm? You, you, know, you, you buy something online because you believe you're going you're to get it. If you, you check it out and you say, is this a secure you know, thing here or not? You know, okay, i got my faith. I'll go forward. Here's my numbers. <laughs> Without that, you're, you're, you're suspended. So, hmm? so to one extent or another, we live in a realm of doubt here, and our movement is, is, is not free. We're not free here. We sense that reality should be like a homeland where there's no suspicion. Like you go home, there's no suspicion, you relax. Your friend you live with cooks, here's something to eat, you don't go, what's in it? You know, check it out, read the labels, you know. Uh, so you're relaxed, you're free. We sense reality should be like this. So reality means it should be beyond, ultimate reality, beyond suspicion. Here we proceed with caution. An intellect-ruled life, we're proceeding with caution. So it's a little stuffy. Hmm? Hmm? We can't get too close uh, to anything or to one another. Hmm? 
this can't be the full sense of 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 the home of the self. We're a little bit in a foreign land, so to speak. So Brindavan, it's sometimes referred to as a, as a, as a domain, a realm of faith, where intellect is put in its place, rather than being on the altar, ration, reason being worshipped. That's a very shallow idea. Right? We won't go into that, but but uh, but faith is a vehicle that that can its its trajectory is far greater than reason. Hmm? We should reason to the point of coming to the understanding as to the limitations of reason. Hmm? If you reason about anything long enough, you can go from one end of the spectrum where you started all the way to the other. and You find yourself all the way over here. Just reason it out long enough, hard enough, and therefore the Vedanta says, Tarko By reasoning, you get nowhere. Hmm? You started over here. I feel like this. Well, let's reason about that. You ended up over here, and the next thing, you know, you were back here. Sri Chaitanya in his youth, hmm? the prince of Kirtan, we were talking about last night, in his youth, he used to play with knowledge. Hmm? He used to teach Sanskrit, and he would play with knowledge amongst the students. There was a school of logic called Nabunyaya. Hmm? It's like neo neologic of the time, very very famous in India. So he would reason about something, and all the st- convince all the students, and would defeat all their arguments, and then he would take the other side and reason it back, and then go back again, back and forth, and show like this is just something a plaything, hmm? hmm? really. You can't get anywhere. So by re- if we reason, we 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 come to. Agnosticism, you know, we come, to, we become frozen. Ultimately, we become inanimated. Uh, also, we're doubting. Hmm? It's a, it's a, it's a. It's therefore, as I'm speaking about it, you can understand. Reason does not have the capacity to fulfill, to to deliver you to a sense of being of reality that is, that is, that is conclusive knowing. That's hmm? perfect knowing, by which I'm. <coughs> Well, perfectly happy. Hmm? Reason does not have the capacity to do that. Hmm? Okay. So, if we have good good association, then we, we with <coughs> someone who has some experience beyond reasoning through meditative, transrational exercises and so forth, that person, especially in the bhakti tradition, who has some capacity to speak the language of love will translate that into into reason hmm? and try to reason about that which transcends reason that kind of reasoning is 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 a different kind of reasoning reasoning about what is what is what is beyond reasoning and supporting its reality hmm? this reasoning can be useful for us in spiritual practice hmm? <coughs> We can employ that to to become steady in our practice. When the mind dictates this, that other things more important, and so forth. With spiritually charged, so to speak, reasoning, we can 
continue in our practice in such a way that it, that it starts to become natural, hmm? like breathing, like eating. Now we, you know, we, we think, I'll do my practice a little differently than we think, I'll have lunch or, or I'll breathe. Hmm? Um, we, we do breath things sometimes when we practice, but the idea is to make the practice your breath. Hmm? Like breathing just goes on without thinking about it. It's more important than thinking too, <laughs> right? So sadhaka, the practitioner's life, hmm, must become like this in due course, and that will be helpful. We'll be helpful in that by good association. Hmm? We will be inspired, and we have to come and get more association, enthusiasm, to apply ourselves in this way. So, what, what's happening in this kind of exercise is that we're getting experience beyond doubt, and that's what we refer to really as faith in the divine sense. It's experience of being beyond doubt, beyond for a moment, for a week, it will come, for a month, for a year, and still the karma will arrest you and come back, and then go in and go out, and, and, and each moment there is so solidifying, so, like, the experience is so powerful, Hmm? That you're drawn to 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 stay connected and keep the, keep the practice and so forth, and point being that you've experienced in a comprehensive way life beyond doubt. That means life beyond reason. Hmm? Life beyond, and that's not unreasonable, but life beyond that. And so, the realm of Brindaban that you asked about is sometimes referred to as the realm of faith, which is kind of the antithesis of the realm of our present experience, which is the realm of doubt. And you can only, you know, doubt is the absence of faith, so there must be faith. But faith is is not this absence of reasoning, oh, you weren't intelligent, so you just said faith, something like that's how it's often thought of. But this is a very shallow idea of what is meant by faith in the sacred texts. Does that help? Yes. Okay. Well, forgive me for the long, long answer there. I wanted to try to bring everybody into it. So, thank you. What is the time? So these are very interesting concepts. I mean, you can see I'm very interested in this. <laughs> I'm animated by it. I've been, been pursuing this, practicing this for almost a half a century now. Hmm? And um, I'm happy to come here, and it's been a very pleasant visit. Um, Lila Mai has done an excellent job of arranging everything, and those of you who have assisted her, um, I was, I'm very much appreciative of that. Uh, I've got to meet some new people and faces, and I hope to be able to come back again, and can, as I used to come more regularly, to come and uh, visit with you, because I gain a lot by being in your company and and, you, and feeling your inquiries and your doubts and, and then I think oh he's doubting I have to keep talking and make and get beyond this and help him to see what I'm saying something like that um, so it's a good exercise for me and uh, very rewarding and most of all I got to meet you and, and be with some of you again some of my students must have about 10 or so or a dozen students living here in Portland so, um, well, I've got many good reasons to come back if you'll have me.
Should we stop there? Hmm? Is, uh, maybe there'll be some refreshments or something, right? Okay, Hare Krishna, thank you very much.